and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Linda Lloyd, and it's my pleasure to welcome Aaron A. Craig, author of House of Salt and Sorrows, published by Delacorte Press. Aaron, welcome to Book Talk. Thank you so much for having me. When I read that this book, The House of Salt and Sorrows, was a retelling of the Twelve Dancing Princesses, I couldn't remember that story, but I did go back and read it. This book is so much darker and different (laughs) than that story. Mm -hmm. So how did you develop it based on that little grain from Grimm? Well, I actually started with the kind of the little seed of the idea for this. I originally had intended it to be an Edgar Allan Poe retelling of his Annabelle Lee. And I tried maybe three or four different ways. I always knew the book was going to start with a funeral and it was going to be the main characters. One of her sisters had passed away, but I never could really figure out how to make Annabelle Lee an entire book, which is, I think, why Poe made it such a short little poem because it works great as a poem, but not so much as a book. I kept trying and trying different ways. I never could seem to just get the right idea for it. And I just had my daughter and I was still kind of in that like pregnancy nesting surge of everything. And so I was cleaning the house and found these old photos of my sister's Girl Scout troop. And they used to do these skits and things where they'd tour to like libraries or retirement centers. And one of the shows they had done was The Twelve Dancing Princesses. There was exactly 12 girls in the troop, so they were all princesses, and they needed somebody to play the soldier. So I, as the older sister and much taller sister, got roped in to play the soldier (laughs) for it. And I saw some pictures of me. Just suddenly everything clicked in my head for the story. It was like, oh, well, we could have like an Annabelle Lee, but with some fairy tale mixed in. And so I think a lot of like the gothic, dreary grimness of it is kind of an homage to Poe, but then a little, you know, sparkly fairy tale on the side. (laughs) So that's where Anna Lee's name came from. You just put it together. Together, almost all of the women in the book are actually Poe heroines. So there's little Easter eggs kind of spread throughout the book. Okay, I did not realize that. It was, I think, the only three I didn't uh, were the Graces, uh, Verity, Honor, and Mercy. And I was trying to pay homage to um, the Victorians' love of naming people after virtues. (laughs) Well, do you think that each one of the girls, by her name, kind of gave her personality as well? I tried to do that with like Rosalie. That was one of Poe's cousins who he had fallen in love with. And so she's kind of the more flighty, romantic, very boy swoony (laughs) of the sisters. And then Lenore, without any spoilers, she has kind of a sadder ending than a lot of the sisters. And so I kind of wanted to instill the Nevermore poem and everything with her kind of character. And Annalie, I tried to obviously (laughs) keep um, the spirit of Annabelle alive with her. You said that it does start with a funeral. (laughs) And Annalie is the primary princess that's part of the story. Her sister, Eulalie, has died, and she immediately notices that she's in the coffin with this weird necklace that was not her sister's taste at all. Mm -hmm. And she starts to get curious. And so there's really kind of a murder mystery involved in this as well. It was very funny. One of the reviews we had said something about it being a murder mystery, and my agent was like, oh my gosh, this is a murder mystery. And it was like, you know, we've we've edited this book how many times and gone through all of these revisions, but there's so many different facets to it that like I had been thinking of it as like a gothic romance and she'd been thinking of it as, you know, like a dark fantasy and there's so many different little snippets to choose from and it wasn't until we got like to the end it was like, oh, this is a murder mystery. And it, like, it is a whodunit type thing. And we were so wrapped up in, you know, other just portions of it. We never really put two and two together <laughs> until it was finished. And it really does have so many twists and turns because as I'm going along, you know, I'm making notes about, 
oh, well, could this be the person or could that be the person? And it wasn't all, I mean, it wasn't at all who I thought it was going to be. (laughs) So, I mean, that was really, I like that. It was fun putting in a lot of red herrings. The villain has always been kind of the same, but we, as we were going through edits and stuff, like the character of Fisher did not exist until I think the fourth revision. And so he got added in. It was really fun to like have some, you know, twists and turns with him and everything. And Cassius, I think he's changed identities several times throughout it for a while. He was a human and he was the ship's captain. Um, and then he was one of the postulants for uh, the Sisters of the Night, which was going to be his kid. And then we have his final identity, which I'll, I'll save the spoilers for him. But he's gone through many changes as well. But it's been fun trying to build in all of the red herrings to, no, it's not this one. <laughs> Well, one of the questions that I had was, do you think every fairy tale needs a Prince Charming? And you just mentioned two that were sort of in a least Prince Charmings. Mm-hmm. And one is Fisher, who becomes the White House Keeper Apprentice, mm-hmm. which is what she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So is there any conflict with her and with Fisher because they have the same goals? I think originally there's a moment where she's going through her nightstand and she finds the letter that he wrote her right after he left because he's been there for for a couple of years at this point as the story starts. And I think it kind of alludes to that they had a little kind of a spat because she was much younger and a child and, you know, wasn't getting her way. So there was definitely just that moment of, Ugh, of course, it wasn't me, you know, and she probably didn't go down to the dock to see him, you know, goodbye <laughs> as he left for his apprenticeship. But they've been friends for so long and they grew up together. I think that she's probably happy that, you know, if it had to go to somebody else, you know, it was good that it went to him. Well, I found her very different from her sisters mm-hmm. because, you know, she's the one who wanted to be a lighthouse keeper. She didn't aspire to be a queen. Why was she so different, do you think? I think because when we see her, the book start out, she's now the second old of the eight remaining sisters. But when she was born, she was actually born sixth out of 12. I love studying history, especially like English, the heritage and all the different laws and everything. And I always felt so bad for like these families with, you know, very wealthy families and like, you know, the first and second born sons always get all of this stuff. And then it's like, well, what about the kids like far down the line? Like they've got to like go out and make their way in the world and like choose a profession and everything. Like they're not going to have this huge inheritance handed over to them. And so I think she very much grew up with the, you know, she probably would have to get married and find something to occupy herself with. But she never dreamed that she would be that close to ever inheriting her father's estate and everything. But just through all of the unfortunate events with her sisters passing away, suddenly she comes second in line now. And so I think some of her, like, aspirations with, like, the lighthouse tending and all of that stuff probably comes from, like, well, well what I'm else not am going I gonna to do. Yeah, like, She's not as boy crazy as the rest of her sisters. And so, like, I think, you know, she's probably knew she was going to be married at some point, but wanted to do other things as well. Well, and it was interesting because now she's second, Mm -hmm. but women actually inherit instead of men on the island. Mm -hmm. And this is very different because most of the time, unless there was a son, even the oldest daughter would marry someone and he and would then be. He would get it, yeah. Yeah. So that's very different. And it's even different in your world from the mainland to the islanders mm-hmm. because they live in a totally different it's a country, right? It's kind of like a province. I saw they're part of the kingdom of Arcania, but they're so far off the coast and the mainland and everything. I saw it as the father has his dukedom, his little country kind of that he rules, but they're far enough away from the, the mainland that they can kind of have these different 
different traditions and customs and everything that, that build up around the island culture. There even seemed to be some antagonism between the mainlanders and the islanders. Is that my perception or is that? No, there definitely is. And I wanted to kind of have a little bit of confusion because the father takes a new wife before the story begins and she's from the mainland. And so I don't remember which... Stephen King book it is. They're, they're all in Maine. But one of the Stephen King books that stuck out for me uh, when I was a kid, they talk about like the differences between islanders and, you know, the people who live on the mainland or people who are from Maine and who aren't from Maine. And if you have to ask, you know, you're obviously not an islander. And I don't know why that line always stuck with me <laughs> whenever I think about like sea stuff. And so I wanted to very much have something that would be very different from the rest of Arcania. And it's just because they are such an isolated estate to themselves, like they would have to have different sets of rules to apply because they've got to be more self-sufficient. They can't just, you know, call their neighbors and say like, hey, we need help with this or whatever. So like I wanted to have a very kind of not prickly tension between them, but there's a little bit of a self-importance. Like we take care of ourselves here. We don't have to call on other provinces for help when disasters happen. We've got to figure out how to solve things ourselves. And so it seemed kind of natural for me that like whoever is born first would inherit. Like they they can't sit around writing for sons. Like something might happen and obviously <laughs> lots of things right. do happen happen to the girls that they don't have the luxury of just waiting for the right guy to come along to marry the sisters or whatever like the girls would have to learn to be strong on their own because i mean if it's like some periods in history people who went to sea might be gone for four or five years mm-hmm. especially with the girls as they start to develop the idea of the curse you know we might not find suitors like if the rest of the country really finds out that we're cursed or these awful things keep happening to us like that might diminish our chances of ever finding an eligible match and so having the girls be able to inherit and rule in their own right was important well the thomas family is that the way you say it thomas 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 <laughs> Okay. They have been in mourning since their mother died. And then they've had a period of deaths with older sisters dying. So they've been in mourning. And all this time, the custom is to continue in black for a year. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Black for six months. And then they, they get to go to like darker grays and everything and then lighter grays. And I tried to base it off a lot of Victorian mourning culture. So depending on like how close you are to the relation determines, you know, your allotment. But with as the it's their sisters and mother, it's supposed to be about a year of total mourning for each death, but the deaths keep piling up. So the mourning keeps piling up. And so as the book starts off, some of the sisters, you know, Verity, um, they've never worn anything. She's, yeah, she's been in mourning since her birth. Basically, her mother died shortly after childbirth. And so she's never known anything but mourning. And so it was fun to explore like what that would do to you like if that's your normal like what would suddenly you're like oh pick out a pink dress to wear one day like that would just be such a strange concept he gets married again the father does and immediately she starts to make changes Mm -hmm. the older girls especially Anna Lee is really curious why her father doesn't believe anything that is wrong. Mm -hmm. Morella, the new stepmother, immediately starts saying, we can't do this anymore. We've got to get these girls in the clothing that suits them, you know, the colors and all that kind of stuff. And so the first thing that they acquire is their fairy shoes. I love sparkly shoes. So that was one of the really fun parts of the book for me, like figuring out what dresses they were going to wear once they come out of mourning and everything. Because the 12 Dancing Princesses, many of the shoes would have some sort of importance. I went to University of Michigan for theater design and production. And so, like, I love taking costume classes and the history of dress and everything. And so I had kind of chosen Victorian England as kind of my touchstone for this kingdom. 
And I loved the idea of court shoes and like satin slippers and dancing and everything. And so I knew I wanted to make them as pretty as possible for these first ones so that it would be kind of like a symbol of, you know, we've been in mourning all of this time and the darks and the blacks and like obviously they're getting pretty clothes and everything. But I wanted to have like that one special thing that would be like... Once we put these on, you know, this is our life now. And so for me, it was the shoes. And I love I love shoes. <laughs> so it was fun to play with. Because you sort of describe what they're putting on each time, you know, that they're going through old trunks. That must have been a good part of the story, it was trying to figure so that much out. Fun. I used a lot of, like, the Met has a really great like, uh, costume collection online that you can go through and look through all of these. So a lot of the dresses that get mentioned there were kind of based off of historical dresses that were worn by Lady Astor or all different, you know, English debutantes. So getting to go through the Metropolitan Archives and everything was very fun to, okay, well, this is what, you know, Camille's going to be wearing for this dress and everything. And it was fun to pick out dresses based on characteristics of the the girls and everything and like what they would want to now that they've got free reign of color and, you know, fashion choices and everything that they've never had before. Like, what would they want to wear? Mm -hmm. And like getting to explore that new side of their life was fun. Well, and one of the things that I found interesting is, even though it's Victorian, there's this element, they actually have gods and goddesses Mm -hmm. that are there, that come to functions. I mean, they have seen these gods and goddesses in different parts of the island. Mm-hmm. Did you have to do a lot of research on Norse or Greek mythology? I to... kind of uh, used Greek mythology as a stepping stone for it. Part of the Annabelle Lee poem is the narrator and his love, Annabelle Lee, their love is so strong and powerful and wonderful that even the angels covet them. And that's what they send this icy cold wind to kill her. As I was trying to incorporate, like, what would that look like in a retelling? I didn't want to go, like, a traditional, you know, angel because I was like, it just didn't work with me (laughs) the way that this story was in my head. And so I started thinking about different cultures who had, you know, multiple gods, gods of different aspects of their lives. And I kept going back to the Greek gods, especially because it's an island, kept thinking of Poseidon. And what that would look like if we still worshipped the Greek gods. And I'd just been reading American gods also. (laughs) So I was like, what would that look like, you know, if these gods that have been worshipped for all these years, like, what would that look like in semi-modern society where they're just walking around and doing their thing and, you know, they're still being worshipped and revered and everything. But we have this kind of semi-modern Victorian sensibilities. And so that was really fun to play with. Like, well, of course, you know, the goddess of love would be a patron of the opera and, you know, theater and everything and, you know, different areas of the country based on like if they're in the mountains or whatever they would be worshiping different gods would be more important to them than others and the gods become very important because the girls find out that the gods use various means to get from place to place yes (laughs) and they discover one in their own grotto Mm -hmm. and that's how they get to the balls. Yeah, exactly. That was such a hard moment to write in the book. My first draft of the book, I didn't actually have Annalie going to any of the balls because I had no idea how to get her there. And that was always one of the sticking points when I would read the Grimm's book because it's like, how are all these parties happening in their neighborhood where they could, you know, feasibly walk to them and their dad doesn't know that that's why they're dancing through all the shoes. They're at these parties. And I never could like reconcile that in my head with like the whole plot. And so trying to figure out how they would be able to get off the island because they are the family there. There's, you know, not a lot of neighbors that would be throwing balls and stuff that the girls could, you know, on their, their And to go on a ship. So I mean, they'd you, have, to, have to travel. Somebody to... would know, obviously. So we need, needed a portal. <laughs> and so we have the gods going from there 
their world to our world. And then you can travel throughout the kingdom very fast that way and get to different areas of the the kingdom in one night and be back by dawn. Now, in the original story, there were princes that came to them to try to figure out what was going on. Mm -hmm. Their father does do that at one point. There's a mention of it at first night. What's one of their big parties, celebrations of the season where they worship Pontus and the, the changing of the tides and everything. I wanted to throw in a little hint back to the original, but it was one of those things I was like, I don't want it to turn into like a whole like solving the shoes mystery because we're trying to figure out who's killing the sisters. But we did have a little moment of he just gets a little tipsy and makes this challenge like anyone who can figure this out gets my estate. And all the girls are like, don't we get a say in this? <laughs> like, Yeah, we're supposed raised. to. Yeah, we're supposed to inherit. Not these, yeah, guys. Not these guys that you just randomly have at the house. We don't like any of them either. They're not very cute. So it was fun to have just kind of a little throwback to the uh, the original story, but keeping it still on point with the plot and everything. Well, why do you think the father is so convinced that the deaths of his daughters are just happenstance? For a while, I had, I think I even read a whole chapter where he like he was convinced there was a curse. And then I thought, that's so sad. Like, you don't want to ever think that, you know, the gods are smiting your family. Like, he thinks he's a good person. Like, he doesn't have any reason to be cursed. He hasn't done anything. I mean, he has done things. But in his mind, he hasn't done anything wrong. And he's just trying to get by. And ha- he's got this beautiful family, and they just keep dying. And so I didn't think he would ever feel bad enough for himself where he would be like, oh, the gods have smited me. And because I think he thinks he's at heart a good person. And so many of the accidents, like obviously there was a plague with the first daughter, like that's how she died. She had pustules and all sorts of disgusting stuff on her. And then the second one, she falls off of a ladder. And so it's just a very unlucky series of coincidences up until Eulalie passes and something just kept nagging Annalie about it you know, something just didn't feel right with her death. And so that's why she starts investigating, because it was the one death that just didn't have like an immediate, this is why she died. And she was really close to Eulalie, too. I mean, they were good friends as well as sisters. Yeah. Yeah. And the anchor necklace gives her one clue. She can't figure that out. And she knows that Eulalie has secrets hidden. And she finds this watch that has a swatch of hair And from the hair, she's able to trace it back to the clockmaker. Mm -hmm. Okay, he doesn't want to talk, but she finally convinces him about it. Even at that point, though, her father still doesn't believe her. No, he doesn't. (laughs) I think he's so preoccupied. He's got all this Duke business going on, and there's a problem at one of the shipping yards in Vasa that he has to travel to. And so I think... Once the morning period broke for them, like, he doesn't want to think about it anymore. He has a new wife, and she's pregnant. And so, like, I think he sees this as kind of like his start over moment. And, like, yes, it's sad all these deaths happened, but we're happy now. Let's stop bringing up all of the sadness. Like, we're done with it. Like, let's just move past it. Eulalie's gone. Nothing's going to bring her back. He doesn't believe she was murdered because all the other ones were, you know, very simply explained away. And so I think that's part of his grieving thing is like, okay, we're done with it. We had our period. We're we're finished and everything. And um, let's, let's be move done on. With it. Yeah. yeah. And like I've got this pregnant wife. We've got maybe a son on the way. Let's be happy with this new stage of life because we've earned it. I think he just wants to move on. And so every time Annalie is like, no, I don't want to come out of mourning. No, I think you know you literally was murdered. Like it just keeps bringing up that past for him. I think it's easier for him to just be like, shove it away. No, let's not talk about this. And 
Move but on. Anna Lee really can't get past it. Mm-hmm. And then Verity, the very youngest, starts drawing mm-hmm. these pictures of the sisters who are dead mm-hmm. and convinced that she sees them. She's seen them. She was my favorite turret. I love Verity so much. <laughs> Not to give anything away, but what she's seen aren't necessarily her sisters, but she's convinced that they are. And it's enough that she's, you know, sketching them in books and trying to convince Anna Lee that they're there. And they talk with her and she talks with them and like she knows all of these things she really shouldn't. Like Ava passed away. I think she was Verity was one when Ava died. And so like she wouldn't remember what she looked like, but she's able to draw these very convincing pictures of her because of what she's been seeing. And that kind of convinces Anna Lee that like something's not right. Like if the sisters had died these natural deaths, they should be in the brine, they should be, you know, in the afterlife and everything, not haunting our little six year old sister. <laughs> so I think that kind of helps spur the whole I need to get to the bottom of what's going on and solve this thing before, you know, if there truly is someone murdering my sisters, like, obviously, they're not going to stop with the first five. So who's going to be next? It's very in-depth in what you did. Even some of the ceremonies that they do, like churning. Talk a little bit about churning. Because at first, I was thinking churning butter when I first read that. It was like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. But... So churning, when I was doing all my research on the Greek gods and everything, there's a festival for the god Pontus, and it's a month-long celebration, and it's at the end of autumn. And it's kind of like the fisherman's last hurrah, like we had this great summer fishing the seas, you know, we're going to put our nets away and go home and make babies and, you know, we'll get the boats ready for the spring and we'll go out and and go fishing. And so I wanted to have something like that, but not necessarily like a month-long celebration. So I created Churning. And it's a 10 days, I think, festival honoring Pontus and like thanking him for his, you know, benevolent weather and the good tides and the fishing catches and everything. And so it starts out kind of very very ceremonially, very religious thing. They've got the high mariner who comes and he has the ceremony at the first night dinner. And it's very much about like, let's honor the gods and everything. And then like, as the week goes on, it gets more and more drunken body, crazy fun party. It sounded a little bit like Mardi Gras. Very much. Yeah. (laughs) Starts out as, you know, this very nice religious thing. And then it's like, ah, let's get drunk and, you know, have fun. And so when they go to Astria, two or three nights into it, there's a big theater production. And I did a lot of like Elizabethan technical theater stuff, which was really fun to pull out of my, my wheelhouse. And so they have all of this grand fun and everything with that. And it's also supposed to be a time to like honor the dead who have been lost at sea. And it's just kind of like a big celebration for all of the people of the salt. And so like there's a couple other festivals that get mentioned. There's on the solstices, the people of the light, they honor the gods Versia. And so they've got a thing with the candles and the wishes and the stars and everything. And so the different cultures throughout the kingdom have their different celebrations, but turning is for the people of the salt. How did you come up with this whole world? Did it happen bits and pieces? Very much so. (laughs) Okay, because I'm thinking, how do you come up with this? How do you put all that together? The island was always there. In Edgar Allan Poe's poem, he repeats the phrase, the kingdom by a sea, quite a a bit of times. And so, like, I always knew it was going to be an isolated kind of island estate out in the middle of the ocean someplace. And I knew, obviously, having it so isolated, we wouldn't be able to get all of the balls and different locations and stuff that I wanted. And so for a while, I knew there was the island and then there was the capital back on the mainland. And that was kind of all I had of the world. And as I started to get more and more balls, Pelage happened and Bloom and all these different locations that they travel to for the balls. And so every time I kind of picked a different spot in Europe that I was going to focus on. And so they traveled to Arabia for a while. They're in 
France. They're in, you know, West Germany area with the forest and the wolves and everything. And so it was just it was a really fun way to explore what this world would look like. But it's kind of a very European centric. Well, you've mentioned Stephen King, Mm -hmm. Neil Gaiman, who wrote American Gods, Mm -hmm. as two people that you've read or are reading. Who else has influenced you? Shirley Jackson definitely came in a lot (laughs) with this one. I love her. She's got such great world building in like the smallest sentences. I was rereading The Haunting of Hill House as I was going through this. I love (laughs) the, the atmospheric tension that she creates with such simple things. During Hill House, there's the main characters. She's going up to Hill House. She stops at a restaurant and the girl's talking about her cup of stars. And like, it's such a throwaway moment. Like, you don't need this in there. But it's such a beautiful like moment. She's got these beautiful, shining, glittering little things and all of this horrible, awful, (laughs) ghosty horror. And I saw that's kind of what I wanted to create with this, like this very dark, dreary world. But there's you know, moments of like sister bonding and shimmering shoes and all of these beautiful dances and everything within all of this dark, gloomy gothicness. Well, one of the sentences that I was going to ask you about is one of your vivid descriptions that kind of helped me see the story is every fiber in my being was paused on tiptoe. With that one, I was trying to remember like when I was a teenager and the first time you get a dance with your crush at a junior high dance or whatever. And just like that moment, like right before it happens where it's just like, okay, we're in this moment. This is about to happen. Just like the anticipation building up to the moment. And of course, you know, it's junior high dance that never lives up to it. But (laughs) that first kiss is never. It's just like, yes, this is great. And then whatever. But I was trying to just capture like that moment because this is the first time, you know, all these sisters have gotten to dance with boys. And like Annalie is 18 because she's been in mourning for so long. Like that part of her life has been put on a pause. And so like, I think, She's so dreamy and introspective. I imagine she's been building up, you know, all these moments of like, this is going to be amazing and just the excitement and building up for that. Well, now, how would you characterize this book? What genre would you put this into? I've been calling it gothic romance or gothic fantasy, gothic horror, gothic something. (laughs) Um, But there are so many facets of it. There's the murder mystery. There's a lot of like dark fantasy stuff. I don't think it ever really truly gets into horror, but there are some awfully disturbing images <laughs> at parts in the book, especially later on in the, the storyline. Dark fantasy or a gothic fantasy. A lot of people have been saying gothic romance, which I think sums it up. We've got the haunted house and the, you know, the girls in the long white dresses with the candle tapers and everything. So probably a gothic horror. Is that the genre that you want to continue in? I mean, are you more about to. romance or? Oh, I love the spooky stuff. <laughs> okay. I'm working on another standalone book right now and there's a little bit of fairy tale retelling aspects to it but it's still in that very gothic creepy things aren't good in the forest don't go into the trees (laughs) type thing well now is this what you planned or did this just kind of happen have you always written i always have had like little stories and stuff going on it wasn't until i had my daughter a couple years ago that i kind of sat down and was like all right, I'm not stage managing anymore while she's so little. So like I need to do something because it was the first time in my life like I hadn't been working and like maternity leave was great. I loved getting to have that time with her, but it was also very much like, what do I do all day? And she sleeps a lot. Like what do I do while she's sleeping? And so I had a Peter Pan retelling that I had been working on forever. And I was like, all right, I'm going to try to publish this. Like let's do this. I guess this will be my project, you know, for the next couple of weeks. I started polishing it up and everything and I took it out on query and I got a couple of full requests and a lot of no's. <laughs> 
I was probably six months into that, I think, where, and I was finally getting to the point where, like, I had kind of gone through all of the agents that I was interested in working with, and I was like, I either need to really rewrite this or I need to write something new. It was that time I was kind of starting to get the 12 Dancing Princesses storyline with the Annabelle thing was coming together, and it was July of 2017 and it was Camp NaNoWriMo month and so I was like this I've never tried to like make myself write like so many words a day and everything but I thought it would be a fun exercise to try out and I was like okay I've got this new storyline let's see what happens and so I wrote it and it just came out like I've never written anything that fast before and I think I had the first draft finished by September there was a pit dark twitter party late October that year. And it's a thing that where you go on Twitter, you like kind of summarize your book and you use the hashtag pit dark, gothic horror or whatever. And agents can like your tweet. And if they like it, it's kind of like a fast pass out of the query slush pile. And so like they'll say like, send me 10 pages, send me, you know, 50 pages, whatever. It's basically like promising they'll read it first because they know other agents are requesting it. And it was such a crazy whirlwind of a day. I tweeted, I think it was the second tweet I did that day. I ended up getting like 86 likes from oh, it. Oh, wow. And I sent out 12 to my top agents that had liked it. And I ended up getting 10 full requests and then five offers of rep from it. And it was like within a week. And so it had been like such a slog <laughs> trying to get an agent with the first book. And then suddenly it was like, oh, 10 days later, I have an offer of rep from my dream agent and dream agency. And like, this is like nuts. And so I accepted with Sterling Lardlet and we got it all polished up and everything. And then we took it out on sub in March. And now we're here we are. <laughs> what is it like after it's published? What do you have to do now? How do you get it's, the word I'm out? I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> it's been really amazing. Like for so long, you know, the book had just been with my agent or with my critique partners and then my editor and all the people, you know, at, at Delacorte and everything. And like, Having it out in the world now, getting to talk with people who have read it and everything, it's just been such an awesome whirlwind. I've been uh, to a couple of book signings and there's like teenagers actually holding the book, which is, you know, the, the intended audience for it. And like getting to see like actual young adults with the book is so amazing. So we've been doing a lot of publicity stuff. So we've been doing some bookstore signings. I'm going to be at Decatur Book Festival this weekend. I'm doing Comic-Con in New York in October, which is really yeah, exciting. Is exciting. And I'm kind of terrified. <laughs> I'm on a, a panel with Holly Black. And so I'm trying to bone up on fairies <laughs> right now. And so we're, we're doing some stuff with that. And then now it's kind of trying to figure out how to write the next story and, and do everything else with everything else. And my daughter started preschool. So it's been kind of just like a very <laughs> whirlwind at the Craig's house right now in the best way. <laughs> well, good. And you're here in Memphis, which is good. <laughs> Have you always been in Memphis? I know you no, went to school I, in Michigan, but yeah. are, where are you from originally? I was born in Iowa. I was raised in Texas. And then I moved to Michigan when I was in junior high. Okay. Um, and my parents still live up there. Um, all my mom's family is in that area. I went to the University of Michigan for stage management, and after I graduated, I bounced like all over the country freelancing uh, with different uh, companies. I was at Radio City for a while and Goodspeed Opera House, and I did some national tours. I always needed like my January slot <laughs> was always kind of wide open because there's always a lot of theater work, you know, for the holidays and stuff. And then in January, everyone's like, okay, we're done. And thankfully, Opera Memphis always usually has a January show, and I started ASMing here in 2007 
And I kept coming back for like a month stint. And when the director of production, she decided she was going to go to nursing school. So the position opened up and um, I applied and, and got it. And so I moved here full time in 2009 and have been here since. Well, I noticed that you are a basketball fan. Oh, yes. I love the Grizzlies. Who, yeah, I was going to ask you, who is your team? Grizzlies. I wasn't sure if it was Grizzlies or Michigan or, you know. Oh, I, for college ball, yes, Michigan. But okay. yeah, the Grizzlies. And I'm so excited for the season this year. Like the new coach and all these new players, it's going to be, we're probably not going to win a lot of games, but it's going to be really fun to watch. <laughs> Another thing that seems to fit right in with your writing is your typewriters. How did you get a hobby in typewriters? I really love Jack Kerouac. I know I shouldn't because he had so many issues, but I love Jack Kerouac. (laughs) A lot of authors have issues, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But he was like in his like just absolute crazy heyday, like writing a book in a week and all these things. He would write all of his manuscripts on scrolls because he didn't have time to take the pages out. He just wanted to keep writing. And so he would write on these huge, long butcher blocks of paper in his typewriter. And I was in Boston. I think I was with Opera Boston at the time. And there's a Kerouac Museum, you know, in Lowell where he grew up. And they actually had part of the the On the Road scroll on display. And I think that was kind of the time when I was just like, oh, I want a typewriter. Like, that looks really cool. And my mom bought my first one for me for Valentine's Day. I was back home in Michigan, and there was an antique store we went to, and they had this really cute little pink typewriter in the window. And I was like, it's pink. It's adorable. Like, I love this typewriter. And I was like, it's a typewriter. It's going to be like a gazillion dollars. There's no way I can afford this. And my mom was like, well, it's Valentine's Day. It's pink. Like, I'll get it for you. And Pinky is my Valentine's Day present. But that was my first one. And then it's one of those things you, you know, you tell your relatives like, oh, Aaron's typing on a typewriter. And suddenly they're like, oh, I saw one at a garage sale. I bought it for you. And it's like, suddenly we have, you know, 35 typewriters. And thankfully, my husband, he's a production print specialist, and he loves anything with type and fonts and printing and stuff. And so when we were dating, I was really excited. He had an Underwood on his bookshelf. We just started collecting them, and there was a really great documentary, California Typewriter, I think, that Tom Hanks is in it, and he was talking about his love of, he has a Hermes that he loves to type on, and Paul was like, I really want to get a, a Hermes typewriter, and we found one on eBay, and then, like, once you start getting them, then you need to keep, you know, them in good condition, so you have to keep buying oh, more so you can get the parts, because, you know, no one's just manufacturing typewriter parts anymore, so we've got far too many in the house now, but it's a fun project. <laughs> hey, I love it. Mm-hmm. And do you use any of them to type on, or do you prefer a PC, or do you write by hand? I do kind of a little of everything. When I'm drafting, I tend to do everything by hand, so I've got a ton of journals, like, all over my office with different projects and things started in them. I really like being able to just, like, scrawl out the ideas really quickly and then I'll put it into the laptop and that's when I kind of do like my first pass of editing and like did you really mean to have that sentence like this is a terrible (laughs) this is a terrible idea why did you do this and so I do a lot of the editing and stuff as it goes into the computer I've got one book that I keep going back to it's a contemporary YA and it's a girl who's kind of over technology and sick of just social media and all these things. And so I've been trying to type it on a typewriter just to see like what the experience would be. be. Yeah. It's so time consuming. (laughs) It is very time consuming. And I like if you don't get the page aligned right, everything gets all wacky and it takes more time. I want to get better at it. But I like typing, you know, letters and stuff. It always gives a little extra special touch if you get a, you know, a typewritten letter in the mail and stuff. Absolutely. (laughs) And my handwriting is terrible. I can't even read it afterwards. Oh, no. (laughs) 
you know, typewriters <laughs> always been my friends. They're so. so fabulous. And my husband, for Christmas a couple of years ago, he got me a keyboard for the computer that actually has the typewriter keys. And it's so nice because you get the click of the typewriter and the feel of it. And you still have to give a really good, you know, push to get the key down. So it feels like it, but it's inputting everything directly into the computer. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. Well, how old will your daughter be before she needs to read this book? Oh my gosh, late 30. <laughs> Is that um, what you want your no, audience no, to be? Not at okay, all. good. <laughs> Just more. Oh gosh, Mama wrote that really. <laughs> I've had some people have said their 12-year-olds are reading it, which makes me kind of cringe a little knowing what happens in the later chapters. But I would say probably 14. It's a mature 12-year-old, I suppose. But kind of 14, it's upper YA. Okay. Um, so 14 and 14 and up, I think, is probably a, a good call. <laughs> okay. And is that where you want to stay? I really like writing YA. I, I would love to, at some point, like write a really scary adult novel. But I love like just the immediacy of the the emotions and the thought processes of YA writing. And I, I feel like you can get to explore worlds you wouldn't necessarily get to with writing adult fiction. I love getting to write teenagers. And like, there's so much, it's it's fun because it keeps me young and <laughs> trying to remember what I was like then. But just like the feelings and the emotions are so big. And I feel like as we get, you know, older and as adults, we're taught writing everything in and, you know, there's logical ways to handle, you know, situations and stuff. And with it, when you're a teenager, you're still learning the rules of that and you get to make mistakes on a grander scale, I think, than you can with adult fiction. Well, we appreciate you being here today. Thank I'll look so forward much. to the next one. Have you already gotten an agent? Are you committed to? I've got my agent. I don't have an editor yet. We're on sub right now with my editor right now. So hopefully something soon. <laughs> well, good. Well, we'll look forward to the next one. Then. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> We've reached the end of our time for today's book talk. I've been speaking with Erin A. Craig, author of House of Salt and Sorrows, published by Delacorte Press. I'm Linda Lloyd, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Talk care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.